Right, so this is it. Uh, the fruit of my labours for the last few months. Chapter one of the uh, history of Roadrunner Records, 1980 to 1986. Yeah, I don't know what to say at this point. It's This is designed to be a YouTube video, by the way. This is why I'm putting this little intro on the front. So if you are in the car and you are listening to this, fine, cool, roll with it. There's going to be some voices which maybe don't have any context, but, you know, you've been warned. Um, this is I do recommend if you're just doing some work or something and have a second screen, just bang it on in the background. But if you do work for Roadrunner or you did or you did work with Roadrunner, just reach out and hit me up because I want to hear your story. As I move into Chapter 2, uh, 1987 through to Iowa. But yeah, enjoy it. Happy birthday, Roadrunner. I mean, there are two things that people should never look into. And that is what goes into the workings of record companies and what goes into the making of sausages. You don't want to know. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's all well and good, Pete. But I still want to know how one of the most recognisable heavy metal brands went from this to this. For the past 40 years, no less than 265 bands have at some point featured on the Roadrunner Records roster. The journey from those first signings up to today has been marred with successes and controversies, which culminated in a mass cull of staff and in turn signed artists in April 2012. As of right now in 2021, only about 20 artists bear the Roadrunner label, three of which are fronted by Corey Taylor. That's like 15%. To start our journey, we need to venture back into 1970s Netherlands. But not everyone loved disco. This is now officially the world's largest anti-disco rally. The record industry was facing its first major crisis since its rise through the 1950s and 60s. As is with most industry bubbles, a downturn in record sales and business revenue is attributable to the emerging technologies of the time, increased exposure to music broadcasts in public places, and generally a more varied roster of recreational activities for consumers to enjoy. It's also been commented that the post-war population boom which brought about the music industry's target demographic was diminishing, as said by then-managing director of CBS Records Netherlands, Coos de Vries. That's the result of the pill. As a result, the target group of 12 to 20-year-olds is decreasing drastically. In our future projections, we assume that our target group will be reduced by 4 to 5 million consumers for Europe, while the 12 to 20-year-olds have always been our largest target group. One thing that disguised the decline in record sales was the overwhelming success of Saturday Night Fever. The smash hit broke sales records in 1977 and moved disco from a fringe movement into a mainstream trend. An article by Miss Solania sets the scene. Disco started showing up everywhere. In 1978, the state of New York declared one week in June National Disco Week. On television, Dance Fever and Soul Train were ratings hits. Film scores to popular movies like Star Wars and Superman were being re-released as disco mixes. Even Disney got into the act with the 1980 album Mickey Mouse Disco. Established rock artists added some disco elements to many of their songs in the late 1970s, further angering die-hard disco fans and alienating their own long-time listeners. For example, the Rolling Stones' Miss You, Wings' Silly Love Songs, and even the Grateful Dead Shakedown Street. To further illustrate the impact of disco's popularity, Netherlands label Polygram's US market share had grown from 5% to 20%. For a short while in the late 1970s, it was the world's largest record company. Slowly, a counter-movement began to spread throughout the United States. In the popular movie spoof Airplane, audiences cheered when the doomed plane knocked down a disco station's antenna. And on the sitcom WKRP in Cincinnati, rock DJ Dr. Johnny Fever regularly wore his Disco Sucks t-shirt. It was becoming cool to hate disco. Disco Sucks! Disco Sucks! The combination of an oversaturated market and the decline of a returning consumer base would lead to a dramatic drop in revenue for the record industry. As described by Dr. Gerben Becker in his 2003 review of the history of Polygram, 
Before 1978, the overconfident Polygram expanded it aggressively, constructing three large, fully automated distribution centers in California, New Jersey, and Indianapolis. Managers optimistically ordered large numbers of records in advance, without knowing the demand. During 1978, all of this was going fine, but when in late 1979, the disco boom busted, everything went wrong. Polygram managers used a pipeline metaphor. The distribution pipeline was six inches high, while the products only took two inches. The over-optimistic ordering of records by managers further aggravated the problem. For example, the 1978 Sgt. Pepper's film flopped, but the album still sold three million copies. However, Polygram had pressed and distributed eight million, and US retailers could return any unsold copies. Losses climbed to a reported $300,000 a day by 1983. It was suggested by Polygram Netherlands co-director Rob Stoit that, as far as the future is concerned, our right to exist depends on the possession of performing rights. If you don't have them, in fact, if we don't get them today, we better start cleaning up a family grave, because that's where we'll all end up in. So how are disco, polygram and performing rights relevant to a heavy metal label? Well, the very lessons learned in that disco bubble burst will leave a lasting impression in the way that Roadrunner would operate. The earliest mention of Roadrunner Records I could find was in an August 1976 issue of Cashbox magazine, detailing that they had just completed a distribution deal with International Record Distribution Association, or IRDA for short, to support the release of the Dell Woods single Chosen Children. This is of course not the Roadrunner we're talking about, but a completely random and striking coincidence even down to the abbreviated distributor, for which you'll shortly learn why. The Roadrunner Records we know was forged in 1981 by two partners, founder of Dutch record wholesaler and distribution company Bertus, Jan van der Linden, and ex-Polygram and RCA executive Case Wessels. Not a great deal is known about Case prior to his time at Roadrunner Records, but what can be confirmed is that by the time Roadrunner Records comes around, Case is already a true veteran of the record industry. Here's a couple of anecdotes that might give you an idea. Firstly, concerns a Dutch band Q65. In a recent book about the Hague Group by Pim Schielings in 2009, guitarist Jupe Roilofs says, To increase our brand awareness and promote the single The Life I Live, the record company decided in 1966 that we, as long-haired scum, had to sail a dinghy from London to Schaveningen. We cursed Phonogram and the label manager Case Wessels, who came up with this great stunt. After a while, the pier of Schaveningen came into view. It seemed like no one was there. Nice mess, we thought, and no dog showed up. But the closer we got to the pier, the more people we saw. It looks back, about 10,000. They came because Radio Veronica had broadcast every hour. This afternoon, Q65 lands in Schaveningen. We gave a press conference, then performed in front of 10,000 people. The Life I Live became a huge hit because of all that hoopla. It shot straight to the top five. Next, I've got a anecdote in relation to the group QB and the Blizzards. In 1969, the album Apple Knockers Flophouse was set to be released. Case Wessels and Anton Wilkamp, the label manager and copywriter at Phonogram at the time, came up with this publicity stunt. They invited a number of farmers from the area of Weezup at Willems Perkins Bar for a cover photo session with the band. There was free food and drinks for all, and when the farmers were reasonably drunk, Case Wessels brought in a stripper, who did a strip act on the bar. A sensation back in those days. The farmers loved it. When they sobered up the next day and discovered the whole thing was photographed and filmed, they panicked. The local mayor took up arms to protect his citizens from a scandal. So the pictures were not allowed to be used. Thus, the album cover contains only the very cheerful band. The film made by the VARA has never been broadcast, despite frantic efforts to retrieve it. So that's the most detailed pair of accounts I can find on Case Vessels in his career prior to Roadrunner. However, I have got a very quick sort of roadmap to all the places he used to work prior to starting Roadrunner. So let's go. In 1973, he's listed as being the sales manager for Phonogram in Wellington, New Zealand, occupying a lovely building right in the middle of town. In 1974, he's moved to Mercury to be the international release coordinator back in Holland. 1975 is back at Phonogram as the international head of A&R, still in the Netherlands. Here's an article where Case is credited with the uh, international surge in popularity of the Barkham and Turner Overdrive, which is oddly poetic, as the very same artist would inspire another key character in the Roadrunner story, but more on that later on. I tell you what, he's not one for smiling, is he? 1979 is moved from Polygram Phonogram to RCA as managing director of RCA Netherlands. 
This is the position it'll hold until the end of 1980, where RCA Netherlands and RCA Belgium will merge into an amalgamated RCA Benelux, and Case was a casualty of the cost-cutting venture. Here's a story from Roadrunner's first employee, Dennis Clute, about Case's initial engagement for RCA. I said, so where are you going to have more? your office? Not too far away. There's a brilliant, uh, beautiful uh, villa that uh, I can rent. He says, come, we walk over. So we walk over, and it's about a 20-minute walk. He says, this is the building. I said, Case, this is a warehouse. Not anymore, he says. <laughs> <laughs> It was a whorehouse. I used to bring uh, artists to that place, <laughs> you know, for these guys to have a fucking... <laughs> so that brings us to the 1980s. So I said earlier that the Roadrunner Records that we know was formed in 1981. However, Roadrunner as a legal entity actually existed three years prior. Specifically, Roadrunner Productions BV was a company formed by Case on the 20th of January, 1978. So here's an email I got from Jan van der Linden. Case wanted to start a company to produce all kinds of gadgets to sell in chain and department stores, the buyers of which he knew from his time as label manager of RCA Netherlands. This is the time he and his family had just returned from Australia, where Case had been the director of RCA. I'm not entirely sure when Case went to Australia in his capacity as a director of RCA, but I'm sure it will all become clear one day. On February the 27th, 1981, I took over 50% of the shares from Case. In addition to selling sound carriers to outlets where he was well introduced to and interested me, he also wanted to remain a producer of gadgets, which in the early days of our partnership led to the production of cassettes, such as language courses and children's stories like Strawberry Shortcase translated into Dutch. There's another example of an early oddity as well. In the very beginning, you know, Case has a long history in music and he used any work at major labels. Yes. And and, uh, the very first release on Roadrun, if I remember well... He did some uh, some children's music, some children's records. Okay. Uh, uh, kids' music, I mean, with it, right? So, so kids singing for kids. After a short stint on Discogs.com, I found Roadrunner's breakout product. Jan goes on to describe that the case's engagement at the start of 1981 was to represent the UK-based Pickwick Records in the Netherlands with his latest outfit, Top Budget. That was until Jan convinced him to go it alone with a record label. The pair are far from metalheads themselves, but Jan's colleague at Bertus, Dirk van Hoofel, was able to tip the newfound label off to which records were selling well over at Bertus's wholesale operation. At its inception, the standard working day at Roadrunner Records would see Jan handling the back-end functions of the label, finances, administration, management, whereas Case would take the mantle of being the face of Roadrunner, managing the relationships with other figures in the industry, artists, label and managers alike. What might surprise you is that the first Roadrunner office was located on Willems Park, Amsterdam, and looks remarkably like a house. Because it is. Um, so the ground floor, uh, well, first the office was in the Willem van Egenstraat in Amsterdam. Mm-hmm. Uh, the ground floor was the office, and two stairs, set stairs up, was where he was living. By he, Mike means case. Case was running Roadrunner out of his front room. The living room from the front to the back was at least 15, 20 meters. And in that, that room was completely empty. The only thing that was there was a huge table plus three huge sofas. That was his, that was his office in the beginning. But why call it Roadrunner? Ladies and gentlemen, if you would please reach under your seats and pull out your tinfoil hats, I have two theories. First, the more romantic of the two theories. If you read up on the aforementioned band Kubi and the Blizzards, one of the first things you might see are early comparisons to the British outfit, The Pretty Things. Now, The Pretty Things were a garage rock band signed to Fontana Records and are considered by some to be one of the early examples of proto-metal, along with bands like The Kinks and The Yardbirds. The fourth single on the band's self-titled debut in 1965 was a cover of a Bo Diddley song, Roadrunner. Now, that red looks a bit familiar, doesn't it? Fontana would then be acquired by, you guessed it, Polygram in 1972. Now let's open up that fucking pit, lads. Come on. Now for the less romantic theory. According to the Urban Dictionary, a roadrunner is a person that 
chases money very often. Given that Roadrunner Productions BV was formed while Case was the head of International A&R, it stands to reason that the name of the company was a tongue-in-cheek projection of Case's love for the hustle. Okay, now for the most likely reason. Case used to be a, a runner of marathons. Half marathons, full marathons. And he always said to me, actually I'm a roadrunner. To get things moving, Roadrunner initially refrained from directly signing bands to make records, instead specialising in the licensing and distribution of products through the Benelux area. Right, and then the first couple of records he released, I think rock music, was Jim Croce. Case had a relationship with Jim Croce from the past, so he released Jim Croce albums. Ed is correct about the Jim Croce records being the first LPs out the door, but there were plenty of other eclectic gems in the initial Roadrunner offerings. One of the very first records that Roadrunner ever put out and possibly was the first album Roadrunner ever put out was by a a very cult German underground act called Liaison Dangereuse and and actually there's a single called Los Ninos del Parque which I bought when it came out um, on Mute Records it was a very early Mute release in the UK in 1982 um, and, uh, you know, that, you know, like now that is held up as one of the seminal, you know, underground electronic uh, post-punk dance records. This trend of licensing eclectic, diverse music and distributing it in the Benelux area was the standard operation for Roadrunner Records at the time. It wasn't until Shock magazine's owner, Metal Mike, turned up at Case's office with something he hadn't seen before. Well, it was a lot of new bands bubbling under and nobody... You know, in our music magazines, you only could uh, read about Kiss, Status Quo, and ACDC. I mm-hmm. said, much more bands, actually. And uh, so I started a magazine myself. And uh, because I was a fan of the new wave of British heavy metal, I traveled to England a lot. And I also went to Port Vale a couple of times. There was a huge warehouse there. You know, in England, there were two musical and uh, newspapers, Enemy and Sounds. I think mm-hmm. they were bi-weekly and... One week was Enemy and the other week was Sounds that came out. And they always had advertisements in there. And one was of a warehouse in Port Vale. Mm-hmm. And why I tell you this, I was in Port Vale and getting, taking all the singles out of the regs to, to, to trade with, with, with pen pals all over the world. And a box came in, a big carton box. And op- they opened it up there to put it in the regs for their distribution, whatever. And it was a hard and heavy album by Anvil. Hey, this looks cool. Never heard of Anvil. Oh, great. Guitar- two guitar players. Done. Oh, they look cool. I'll, I'll get this. And it was a shipping uh, letter in the, in the box. So I took not only the vinyl, but also the, the shipping letter mm-hmm. for this uh, Can- uh, Canadian import. And when I got home one day later, I called the number on the shipping letter and I get El Mare on the telephone. El Mare is Alexander Mares, the head of Attic Records Canada, right. the boss of Attic Records. His phone number was on the shipping letter. So I got in touch with him and I said, you know, can you take care um, that or can you um, make sure that this album not is only available as an import, but also that our metal fans can buy it as a you know as a, a, a European printed album final so it's not so expensive mm. so I'm just a metal fan doing this kind of stuff he says well I heard of a guy in Hilverson who wants to start a record company his name is Says Wessels I never heard of the guy definitely not a metalhead otherwise I know most of the metalheads kind of you know so he gave me an address so I drove to Hilverson mm-hmm. um and where that guy was working in a little office, I think it was part of Poly- Polygram or Phonogram, Polydor Phonogram, or I'm not sure. So I met Sace Wessels and I gave him my copy of Anvil's Hard and Heavy. I said, well, I talked to this guy in Canada, Almer, and uh, he says, he uh, told me that you would start a record company. Yeah, I think blah, blah, blah. So I gave him my copy and Almer sent me a new copy of the Anvil record. And that was my first meeting with Case. That's how it started out. First thing you did was distribute to him, effectively. I gave him the first record, metal record that he put out. Yeah. That's that's how uh, I got involved with Saints Vessels. Similarly, Case was tipped off to another record by a soon-to-be competitor. I found in Mausoleum Records in the winter of 1982, a few weeks after I'd been fired from my job as marketing manager at Inelco. In the early 80s, Inelco in fact distributed Roadrunner, 
One day I actually gently nudged owner Case Wessels to release the first Twisted Sister album, so I perhaps unknowingly created a future competitor for my then-yet-to-be-born mausoleum heavy metal label. Then he licensed in some uh, uh, some rock stuff. He licensed from England, yeah, uh, some punk stuff. Mm-hmm. I think the UK subs, he exploited. I was there at that time. I worked at Birds, but I wasn't involved with the stuff. I picked the stuff up at the factory. Yeah, yeah. And I also seen things through a UK label came Twisted Sister. The very first Twisted Sister album. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. And around that time, when, when Roadrunner was still, you know, going the punky route and Twisted Sister was there, suddenly Twisted Sister hit big in the US. Right. And that made the catalog album from uh, from Roadrunners, you know, sell quite some numbers. And I think that's that's the moment when Case pulled definitely towards rock and metal music. Case was an opera fan, and Jan had a passion for African music. But being the face of the business, I wondered if Case had any bearing on the metal genre at all. No, not at all. Well, he's a smart. He was a smart businessman, but he didn't know jack shit about metal. Yeah. Um, well, that's okay. But he knew how to. And I mean, his. I always saw the sales sheets, and Jim Croce was when selling a lot. I mean, that paid for all the bills in the company. Because wow. uh, metal was not not that big yet, uh, mm. not not in that big scale. The bands that sold the best were of course Metallica records because they kept on selling and I made sure that Roadrunner did a balance uh, Germany, Austria, Switzerland uh, all the releases for Music for Nations in, yep. in our part of the world that's something I, ra- I arranged with uh, Johnny Z mm-hmm. Sage was surprised that the Metallica record ke- kept on selling normally uh, an album would sell really hard high numbers in the first couple of weeks and then it you know it trickles down yeah and with metallica just kept on selling 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 it was quite funny because in the beginning when 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 you had metallica and slayer you know there was so much great stuff going on at that time Mm -hmm. Uh, and it was those two bands but metallica and and slayer you know they were general innovators yeah never got beaten they the innovators never get beaten you know happens in every happens in every musical genre yeah, there's somebody uh, develops it, and, and and the initiator never gets beaten, and they sold almost the same. You know, mm-hmm. Like it was unbelievable for years, they sold almost the same until until Metallica had masses of puppets, and that's when they you know took a big leap forward. But the first two records, and the and the first two records from from Metallica and Slayer both both sold almost uh, identically in Europe. Yeah. Off the back of success stories like Metallica and Twisted Sister, Case set about establishing relationships with other metal labels around the world, which in turn led to other lucrative licensing opportunities. On an operational basis, it appears that Roadrunner, in its infancy, resembled more of a publishing house than it did a record label. You know, and I was only only had distribution in, in the U.S. There was no distribution in Europe whatsoever at that point. And this is still, you know, independent distribution in the early '80s was a very small very tiny window of just a few different distributors and there were some yeah. in Europe but there wasn't a whole lot so I think it was about 83 I'd put out you know a few records and I got a call one day from this guy named Case Wessels who was starting Roadrunner Records and he was looking for you know partners and just and just product and since I didn't have any sort of distribution in, in Europe he said uh, hey you know I said this is Case Wessels from Roadrunner blah 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 I'd be interested in in licensing some of your records for distribution in Europe, what do you think? And I was like, oh, well, that sounds like a good idea. And then we kind of started the relationship from there. It was really Roadrunner and then also uh, Music for Nations because they were kind of partners mm-hmm. at the time, more or less. I mean, they weren't, I don't think they were really business partners, but, you know, Martin Hooker and, and Music for Nations would do stuff in the UK and the case and Roadrunner would do it for the rest of Europe. So, I, yeah, I didn't really have much experience with any, anything. I, I was learning on the fly as you know, a 22 year old kid at the time. Yeah. So, but I had a, we had a really good lawyer here in, in the US and a couple people were involved in the industry that kind of helped me through that. But uh, we did a bunch of those things for him er, early on as well. And, and it worked. I mean, the relationship worked out great because he sold a lot of records for us in Europe and we helped them out in, in the States as well. In 1984, Roadrunner moved their offices out of Case's front room, one street over. To Van Egenstraat. 
Then the office moved to the Van Egenstraat, next to the Vondelpark in Amsterdam. And there the ground floor was the uh, Roadrunner office, and one floor up was Archer Metal Hammer. Well. So I could use their office, to, so I could do their A&R work, write bios in three languages, because I speak English, German, and Dutch. Okay. And so work uh, for Roadrunner and work for the magazine at the same time. It was at this time that Roadrunner would also look to expand both its headcount and its strategy beyond simply licensing music for the European area. Roadrunner would now look to acquiring its own direct signings. The change point was when Case Wessel realised that he no longer wanted to, to depend on third party as a source of repertoire. So, with the task of removing the business dependency on third parties and instead acquiring direct signings to the growing metal outfit, one task would have to be overcome. How do two 40-something men who do not like metal acquire metal acts? And that was also a time where I shared artist uh, office space with Mike, who runs Artshock magazine. But Mike was also in an A&R role for the label. Yeah. And um, I remember him always, and we always have that joke when we see each other. Um, he would say... I would present the band to Case. Case would pass on the band. Nine months later, Case would come back to me, talk about the same band. Then it was presented um, to him by, his, by, by the lawyer in New York, and the price would be three times as much as nine months ago. <laughs> uh, I, th- I think there was probably a, a, a truth into that. If you give him recommendations, what was what was it that engaged him? Did he because he again, as we say, he's, a, he's an opera guy. So what would make him click and make him go, oh yeah, fuck yeah, let's sign this band? I don't know. Maybe my enthusiasm, or yeah. um, I couldn't, you know, I couldn't give him numbers and stuff. There was no. I mean, nowadays it's so easy everything with the internet and stuff. But then it was so hard. I mean, you didn't have internet, you didn't have fax machines yet. Mm. Everything went. Totally different, in a totally different pace, you know. Yeah. I mean, I'm sending a letter to Lars, offering him stuff, and a month later, maybe lucky, I get yeah. a let, you know, letter back if we're not calling. Yeah. That kind of stuff. Um, it's 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 yeah, it's hard to understand for somebody who's who's started, you know, was born 20 years later. And and, and I think, but where 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 he was really good was. Although he didn't understand the musical genre fully, mm-hmm. he did want to have the bands from today and tomorrow. He never wanted to do have anything to do with the bands from yesterday. And yeah. this is where I think, yeah, but this is something underestimated. I think this is where the big difference come from uh, from Roadrunner and a lot of other labels. Because in my in my recollection, Roadrunner was up there, mm-hmm. right? and there was a yeah. big gap until the second label came. And, and I think this this. Uh, drive that he had like you know working with today's and tomorrow's bands and not be interested in yesterday's band has made a difference as it turns out chasing today's bands isn't always as simple as receiving a demo tape we had done like a, a kind of a, a a battle of the bands contest but only for metal bands which was called the metal race and uh at this uh what we didn't know was that that in fact, the, the the metal race was going to be recorded, and was go and 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 was going to be released on the road on Roadrunner as a compilation album of the four finalists of of of, the, of, the, of that battle that day. You know, the the guy of Roadrunner that was there, we told him like, listen, mate, <laughs> we didn't know that this was going to be recorded and it was going to come out as a compilation, and we don't want that. You know. The guy from Road Racer that was from Road Runner that was that that, that was the, the contact guy for the compilation album. He said like um, you know like uh, Case Wessels uh, uh, will come personally to Brussels to meet you guys because uh, he wants to talk the deal over with you guys again. So he came back, and then he did a, a deal that week that we kind of couldn't refuse. But part of the deal was that we would agree to release that compilation album that we would say okay we take part on this on this metal race compilation album now the reason Roadrunner the only reason probably that we ended up on Roadrunner was that this demo tape that we did you know we sent loads out uh, and the, our demo tape, t- demo tape ended up on the desk of a guy called Doug Smith who was Motorhead's manager uh-huh. okay right so uh, and he managed before that I think he managed Hawkwind probably 
mm. hence Lemmy connection. Yeah. Um, so, so uh, our, our copyright demo tape just was sitting on his desk, and, and basically what happened was he called me up. You know, out of the blue, he just my phone went, and it's like, hi, oh, yeah, it's, it's Doug here, Doug Smith. Oh, you know, it's like, oh my God, I knew who he was, you know, and he's like, he said, listen, I've got um, Case Vessels here uh, in my office uh, from Roadrunner, uh, and he's very interested in signing the band, and I'm like, really? Um, he said, look, come up, come up to London, and and we'll talk about it, uh, and that's basically what happened. And Doug said to me. You know, Case was here talking about whatever, something else, and he said he just looked round uh, on my desk, saw. He said he, he, he pointed to the Jaguar demo tape, and he said he said he said to me, "Get me that band. I want that band." <laughs> this is what Doug told us, and we're like, "Whoa!" And so it kind of went from there. Now, a good chunk of the first direct signings to Roadrunner, including the bands that you can see on screen, seem to originate from the northeast of England. And after a bit of digging, it seems that they all originated in some way or fashion from Guardian Records in the Durham area. The label and its accompanying studio was run by a chap named Terry Gavigan. And typically, the route to Roadrunner for these bands was the band would self-finance a recording at Guardian Studios, which is then put out by Guardian and Terry. Terry would then take on like a managerial role with the band, and then the band would inexplicably end up on Roadrunner. So here's Dave King from Battleaxe, who's going to explain a little further. So my dad invited Case to come over and watch the band at Leeds Poly, which was our very first gig, Leeds Poly, right? And how the fuck we got signed, I don't know, because the gig, the gig wasn't that very good. And anyway, we went, you know, there was only five people there to vouch for it, so I can't even tell really. Anyway, we still got signed to Roadrunner for a four-album deal, which amounted to about £32,000 in the contract, which was amazing, for wow. just coming from nowhere. Yeah. So, what had happened is, we, we also invited Case to come up to the studios, I was telling you, to Guardian Studios, to watch his... Uh, do some recording for Burn This Town, you see. That once once, uh, once uh, uh, Terry Gavigan had met Case, the next step would be to, well, if there's any other bands that you want, you know, send send, send us the demos, you see. Simple as that. And so, yeah, any, any, any bands that were signed from Terry Gavigan after us was purely because we brought Case over, you know. I mean, we even, we even put him up in a hotel, you know, to, 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 this is how, we, this is the things you've got to do. Similarly, in the US, Roadrunner would source bands from managerial relationships that existed over there. Richard Tamini tells me about how he helped nudge Peter Steele towards a 21-year relationship with Roadrunner while working for New Look magazine. And I was shopping all these, whatever it was, my own projects and, and all these bands to the, to the majors. Mm-hmm. And I kept discovering people, not many people, I discovered people like Peter, for example. And I thought, you know, this is the next Pink Floyd. These guys are amazing. And I take them to the majors, you know, who eventually were doing things that I was a part of, like these pop hit records mm-hmm. uh, that went, you know, triple platinum and all that. So I take it to those guys and they hated this stuff. <laughs> hated it. Hated it. I said, what are you doing? This is garbage. You don't have anything to do with it. You know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I'm saying to myself, you know, what's wrong with you fucking people? Are you nuts? <laughs> and I, honestly, I think... I think what was going on, it's just speculation because they'll never admit it, but the thing that offended people about Carnival eventually that none of us from Brooklyn saw, mm-hmm. at least not in our crowd, uh, until they went on tour and then they were targeted for death by some fringe psychopaths. Do you know yeah. what I'm talking about? Yep, yeah, yep, yep. I think, I think that part of the writing, of the storytelling, remember that's what it is, it's storytelling. These are mm-hmm. fucking stories. Mm-hmm. I think the people I was taking this record to, that's all they heard. They didn't right. hear story. I think they're, they're and they weren't even going to address what they thought it was. They, you know, they were going to say to me, your friend's a fucking Nazi. You know, they weren't going to say that. But retrospectively, that's exactly what I think was going on. Because you can't deny this music. It's ridiculous to deny what he was doing. I did a, a, that, uh, did a few pieces for New Look, and one was... Uh, I thought, oh, let's do a thing on CBGB since I'd been playing there since it opened. Uh, and I knew Hilly. And I went down there and uh, I, 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 it was a new scene for me to see, you know, agnostic front and this whole thing, because that wasn't yep. my sort of 
thing. And um, so I found it kind of exciting because it's all new, right, for me. And seeing the mosh pit, mosh pits, but to quasi metal, you know, instead of the punk. It was like an interesting hybrid. And I, I found it very interesting. So I took pictures of the thing and all that. And while there, I uh, talked to Hilly about getting Peter gigs there. Mm -hmm. And he said, well, you know, tell him to come on down and we'll see how it goes and blah, blah, blah. So Hilly Crystal was open to it. Um, you know, the owner of CB's. Yep. And that was great. And then while there, I think through Agnostic Front, I met Connie. Uh, she was there. <laughs> yeah. And I didn't know who she was from a hole in the wall. And, um, you know, she had the punky hair and that whole wacky sort of uh, thing going. Mm -hmm. And um, But she was a proper manager, apparently. And so I, I told her about the band. And I gave the number and all this kind of thing. So I'm promoting them. Yep. So the good news is uh, she got them a deal with uh, Roadrunner. Roadrunner would eventually have a relationship with the New York hardcore scene that Richard just alluded to, but again, more on that in Chapter 2. It's worth taking an aside here to point out that any dealings with Roadrunner in the United States at the time was under the name Road Racer. This was thanks to an intellectual property conflict concerning the name Roadrunner and a non-migratory omnivore. It's intriguing that, at least in the examples that are presented, that Case isn't moshing in his office to jag his power games before sending them a record contract. He's using his networking skills to gain access to the metal scene through business contacts and taking it from there. But that's not to say he was taking any band that would pick up the phone. One thing is for sure, Satan sells. No matter how you slice it, it's not the heavy metal bands like Black Sabbath and Kiss that are losing money in the current record industry depression. In fact, some new groups seem to be picking up that satanic smell of success and following along in its path. I think that within the rock music field, you've got people who really are into the occult and into Satan. Uh, and then you've got some who probably are playing games. But no matter how you cut it, they're propagating Satan. They're propagating the demonic line, the occultic world. And I think it's a devastating thing on our culture. Throughout the 1980s, spates of incidents involving satanic ritual abuse spread across the globe. Typically, such events would be reports or allegations of physical or sexual abuse in the context of occult or satanic rituals. As is often fondly remembered, heavy metal was thrust into the role of the antagonist for the satanic panic. It's my tinfoil theory that Case proactively sought out bands who could be tainted with the mark of the beast to drive up interest. We're aware of Case's skills for causing a buzz around a band, and as put by Tom Watson in a 2016 article on Satanism in Music, controversy sold and the devil were paying for it. To illustrate, here's Merciful Fate's Hank Sherman. At our live shows, we had these upside-down crosses and these nuns that exploded on stage. But to me, it was basically entertainment. And to our advantage, there weren't too many bands that dealt with that stuff. We had a lot of attention going on because we were satanic preachers and all that. And King was always in interviews with Christian people on radio and on TV. So that brought a lot of attention. Uh, so anyway, I was, I was... That's one reason why... I, I got along and really loved what Peter was up to. He thought uh, in a similar way to me in terms of big and th theatrical and let's yes. try this and let's try that. Big concepts. Yeah, and he wasn't afraid to say God is dead, just in case, maybe, who knows? You know, he, I mean, he, it was all storytelling. It was all exploration. It's all freedom of speech. It's all the arts. I mean, the people were on television, European television, I've, I've seen the clips, you know, threatening his life. Yeah. And for what? You know, he's a musician. He's, what are you people insane? You like that? And so um, there was so much for all the positive stuff that was potentially happening. Um, there were a lot of people that were treating what Peter was doing like it was some kind of uh, nascent psychopathic political movement that might grow. And, you know, there'll be a there'll be a massive killing, you know, yeah. it's like you people are out of your fucking minds. So, again, credit to the, his label. For saying fuck off and still yeah. helping them out, you know, keeping it going. I'm, I'm amazed. I was quite ready to bury this theory until my conversation with Neil from Sparta Warrior, who he had to say this when asked how the band's relationship with Roadrunner ended. Roadrunner wanted to hear some new material. We recorded five songs, sent the tapes to them, and waited to hear if Roadrunner wanted to take the option or not. Roadrunner contacted us saying that they wanted us to play what they described as devil music. 
Luckily, before I went too far past the Hellgate, Brian Slagle brought me back to reality. <laughs> it's an interesting concept, but I think it was more of the, the, just the bands of that time. That's where everything kind of went. If you look at all, all those bands, and obviously he did Metallica and Anthrax and other bands that weren't you know, blatantly satanic as much as Slayer or Russell Fader. Satan, which was another band that we put out for him in, in the U.S. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think that there is... And this is, you know, my my perspective as well. There is a, a form of anti-establishment, you know, pushing the envelope, that sort of stuff. And I grew up in the 70s with, you know, Alice Cooper and Kiss were the most horrible people on earth, and I loved what they were doing. So there's a little bit of that, you know, kind of shocking people, all that sort of stuff. So I think he liked that part of it. And it was pretty easy because there were so many bands around the time that were doing it anyway. But I, I don't know. I mean, if, if there was a concerted effort for him, he never told it to me. Let's put it that way. But I do know that, that one of the reasons why he left the, the major label was because he wanted more freedom to do what he wanted to do and, and kind of wanted to go against things that were, you know, because you know, especially major labels in the 80s, you know, you're trying to do anything controversial and they don't want to hear much about that. So, so for him, it obviously gave him a lot more freedom to do whatever he wanted. And he, you know, found it into this whole, you know, new heavy metal scene that, that nobody was really picking up on at the time. And obviously he went in full bore. But accidental or not, the antagonistic presentation of the first Roder in a lineup was a viable marketing tactic. Merciful Fate got publicity for making the PMRC's Filthy 15 list, and Carnivore would invite prolific backlash from the more conservative types right up into the later typo-negative years. So when dealing with Roadrunner, what's in it for the bands themselves? When I signed with Carnivore to the label, um, the deal was, in fact, horrible. As a matter of fact, it was a conflict of interest because... I was young and ignorant and uncircumcised at the time. Uh, the record company recommended that we use their lawyer, which we did. So he's like, everything in here is cool. Of course it was cool. So my attitude was, well, I really don't want to be some fucking rock and roller because that was never my ambition in life like it was an adaptation worker so whether I fucking pick up garbage or write it it's the same thing ultimately my reading so far indicates that the standard record deal would be for six to seven records all intellectual property and publishing is retained by Roadrunner and the band would typically receive an advance of about somewhere around five thousand dollars for the first album yeah yeah, that sounds about par for the course, Jim. Yeah, that's about. Yeah, that's about it. I think. Yeah, that 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 sums up a little bit uh, of the of the deal. Uh. There's no about right. That was right. The, <laughs> the only the only the only thing that was different um, was that you know the the advances varied, so they weren't necessarily okay. five grand. May have been the beginning of the label, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, we did a little better than that later on. Perhaps a more intricate summary can come from Satan's Russ Tippins. Actually, it was even worse than you just stated. They sent us a contract through the post which we took to a lawyer for advice. He was quite unequivocal in his scathing assessment of the terms and said, whatever you do, do not sign this deal. It was set out for a five-album deal, but the label would retain the rights to the master recordings in perpetuity, meaning we would never get them back unless we bought them. Same with the publishing rights too. They proposed a £2,000 advance to make the debut LP, plus a couple hundred quid for an artist to draw the cover. The proposed royalty cut was 8% of 90% of the base price, not retail. Of course, we signed the deal and made the record within budget. Since then, the only royalty payment we've received from that album came from Neat after they reissued it 15 years ago. Also, there's no guarantee of tour support. My theory on this is because of the ill-fated Merciful Fate Manowar Tour of England in March 1984 and Roadrunner didn't want to be tied into funding any shitty excursions that weren't expected to make any financial returns. So why was the deal so bad? There's a different attitude. Um, I think the work ethic is, yeah, the work ethic and attitude is different within rock music or metal mm -hmm. than it is in, in Indian alternative. Mm -hmm. Trying to say that, and I go back in my mind, it's just how I look at it, Think about this. You're a band you're a band from Birmingham, right? And there's plenty of them from sixties, seventies. 
And you're or from another part of the UK, or for that matter, US. And your choice is to either work in a in the mines or steel plant or go in a band and be successful. Mm-hmm. You would sign anything to get out of that situation, right? And I'm sure that even in 80s Thatcher era, people would sign anything to get off the door. I had a friend, friends of mine mm-hmm. who were in the band. They signed to Polydor. They went from 60 pounds a week on the door to 100 pounds being in the band. Simple, right? In a way, you didn't want to miss out on the next big thing. But on the other side, you know, if you got a couple of A&R people and they throw bands at you and you say no, and they go like, well, you got to do this one, you got to do this one. And you you end up with a, with a whole bunch of, of bands. Mm-hmm. And then I think I think Cages went back to the A&R guy and said like, well, you know, if you want them, this is a deal. And he would do that because it was cheaper. It wasn't a major investment, but I must say like, Sepultura is one of those examples. Sepultura, I think initially was on, was, on, was on a deal maybe less favorable than they got later. Mm-hmm. When the moment, you know, when he smelled blood with them, they were on the road opening up for, I forgot, and I was at, uh, I think they were Sodom. on the road with Bunny it. With him, sorry? Sodom. Yes, you're right. They were on the road yeah, with Sodom. Mm-hmm. And, and they, they just, you know, they just basically, that's where, that's where the band initially broke over here. Yeah. And that's when Kay stepped up, you know, made the investments and, and just broke Sepultura into the big league. They, they, they toured big. That's, that's the thing that, that people forget. Musically, Case had no real authority to tell a metal band how to exercise their craft, especially as a lot of these bands had arrived at Roadrunner with albums already recorded. However, as a marketing and salesperson, he was quite happy to influence the album's appearance for when it would sit on store shelves. However, the bands didn't always agree with handing the reins over to Case. We had somebody that, that, that took care of the artwork and uh, then suddenly the artwork was changed, you know, like... Uh, I received a call from Gus Rowan, the guy in between, you know, the yeah. case and us, you know, who said like, you know, from Monday on the, the record will be in the shops, you know, so I went to the to the shops on Monday and I couldn't find our record. Then the guy pointed out, well, there it is. And then I saw it was a totally different cover, you know, so we'd, we'd never seen the cover before and they, they never told us they were going to change the cover. <laughs> so they didn't tell us like, no, we don't like your cover or the cover has been rejected. They just they just decided to change the cover and we just we were just like left open mouth with open mouth in the in the record so like what the fuck is this you know <laughs> like plus the fact that they changed the title of the album as well you know it was uh, because we, we we did we never wanted to 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 be brutal destruction uh, we we the the original title was was in fact going to be the destroying brutality that was the original title. I, I called Case and said, like, what the fuck, man? You just, you just, you know, you didn't even tell us. He said, like, you know, yeah, but, you know, like, uh, yeah, I think Brutal Destruction sounds more commercial, you know? And the fact he says, like, now with the German band destruction being so popular, like, you know, it's, it's a good thing. Like, I said, like, fuck off, man, and I threw down the phone, you know? Here's Franz from Maggie May, although for this album, Roadrunner made them change their name to Wildcat. When the first records were delivered, we were shocked. We didn't know they would change the cover. Weeks before, we'd been to Munich for a photo session at the Bravo Studios, at the same time as Dee Snyder and Nina and so on. There were photos made, and they were intended to make up the front and back covers, as well as the PR booklet, etc. So the front cover should show the girl from the backside riding a Black Panther. There were some really nice shots, but as you can see... Wow. I remember Case ringing us up. It was if it was like last week. He said, "Dave, uh, I, to, to me, Dad actually, Derek, that was the manager. Derek, uh, can you ask the lads what ideas do they want for the cover of the album? You know, so give us a few days. We'll think about it. So we got in touch with a couple of local artists who come up with some ideas. You know, we ex- ex- something to do with motorbikes, something to do with Sunderland." Sunland City now, you know, burning down in the background because it was a shit all year. So it was Sunland to be burning down in the background and somebody on a motorbike. So this guy who we knew called Arthur Ball, not not Arthur Ball, <laughs> Arthur Ball, and he decided to put together a bit of a what they call a, a, a proof of an artwork idea. And he, he was an artist at a school, a local school in Sunland, and he came. So, sorry? 
Yeah, concept, yeah, to see so that that concept could be taken to an artist to do it properly, you know. We said, hey, that looks good, you know. If an artist gets all of this, a proper, a proper graphic artist and does it properly, it'll be great. So we send it to Case Vessels for, a, for his opinion. And two weeks later, it came out around the world. <laughs> <laughs> Similarly, here's Phil from Dark Heart. Would you believe it was a painting Case had in his house he said we had to use? As the cover we had done of a woman looking into a mirror, a wolf, was far too complex to reproduce. Even the band logo was changed. We hadn't even been asked to see the painting, so when the album did come out, we were like, what the fuck? Not expecting it to look like that. I mean, many former Roadrunner bands throughout all of history have spoken about ill treatment, or more commonly, the lack of supporting activity from Roadrunner. To go into this at this stage would be quite repetitive, and frankly, this isn't a takedown piece on the label. So, at this point, I'll invite you to check out the full interviews on the website, the YouTube, the Spotify for now, and I'll probably go into a little bit more detail at a later date of this series. However, sometimes, the working relationship with Roadrunner was so unproductive, it would lead to sometimes interesting and creative conclusions. Basically what happened was, um, uh, we kind of came up with this plan, us and, and uh, Doug, Doug and stuff, we came up with this plan, uh, let's convince Roadrunner that we've gone, we, we, gone disco. And, uh, <laughs> I'm not lying, uh, and the, the next record would be a disco album. <laughs> and um, at that point they said fair enough okay and they let us go <laughs> here's Franz from Wildcat again we didn't like the sound of the record nor did we agree with the decisions regarding the band name and the cover so Joe Bleacher and our tour manager Roger Bricks went to the federal testing agency for writings harmful to minors that existed at the time in Germany and filed a charge a few weeks later the record got x-rated and was forbidden to be sold in Germany they nuked their own album, and that's pretty fucking metal. So what are we to make of these experiences? Were Casey and Jan kicking back behind their desks, cigar in mouths, laughing at our struggling artist heroes? Nah, I don't really think so. I mean, we already know that Roadrunner was a young company, being manned at the time by a skeleton crew, a lot of whom were still in their 20s at the start of their careers. And as we saw from Casey's career up to that point, the music business was a very volatile, very unpredictable, and not exactly a regulated industry. While I wish the communication between the label and its bands were more amicable, I also understand Roadrun's position on the matter is that the band and its output is an asset, and if the difference between that asset making returns or becoming a financial liability hinges on the album art, or the advance of the first record, or anything like that, these are all decisions for the most experienced people in the room, which were Case and Young. He had licensing deals in the US for some of his artists, and I don't know which artist it was. Mm -hmm. It was an artist who had delivered an album that never got released in the US. And Case was not bothered at all. He said, I got the advance, and that's substantial. So let's move on. Musically, he's into opera. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he, does, he doesn't really care uh, uh, you know about metal he cares about metal but he doesn't care about it you know like a fan um, yeah. but otherwise i think he was more of a guy who just wanted to make you know economic um um use of the situation you know putting it into yeah. an economic situation while it's enlightening to know that roadrunner sought to make economic returns on the innovative qualities of metal were they the only ones who had put all their eggs in the metal basket? Fuck no. Awesome a metal blade, noise records, earache, new renaissance active records formed through RCA. Combat records, fringe product, Dr. Dream, SPV, intense records, neat records, music for nations. Let's take a look at some of the other competition Roadrunner had to deal with. What you're seeing is just the amount of releases each label puts out per year. I don't have sales or market share figures, but we can infer a measure of productivity from which each label was pushing out the door. And the labels themselves, I just picked kind of at random based on, you know, the bigger names at the time. We can see that while Roadrunner is head and shoulders above the rest in making their presence known, the market truly starts to get a little bit crowded by the mid-late 1980s. What's more, 
a fair amount of that traffic is coming from the United States. With all this competition building in the US territories, Roadrunner understood that being entrenched in Amsterdam wasn't really an effective strategy for expansion. The Nordic office, I think, was our first strategic um, action, just, you know, to, for A&R purposes, you know, go to the country where, where your competitors are, where the bands are, mm-hmm. and, you know, and, and, and beat them. And, and I think that's, 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 a, that's been the drive. And the New York office, in, in the end, I would say, replaced all the, all the license deals. Because suddenly he was closer to the fire, you know, and, and he, he would have bands from New York and have a distribution set up in the uh, in America. And I think, you know, that took a big investment to do it from uh, from the Netherlands. And so, in 1986, Roadrunner opened its first U.S. office on 225 Lafayette Street in New York City. A real heyday. I mean, this was a this was a real heyday for that the, the, that that new wave of British heavy metal. And then the uh, explosion of the underground of USA metal with Metal Blade and Shrapnel Records on the West Coast. Mm-hmm. And then um, then the opening of Roadrunner here, along with Combat and Megaforce. Roadrunner opened here and was, you know, was good, good competition to, uh, to them all. This is Alan Becker of Important Records Distribution. He was on the ground floor where homegrown hard rock and metal was manufactured and distributed throughout the United States. Now here I'm going to recommend that you check out the full chat with Alan Becker because here I had to cut down the conversation considerably to keep it you know, flowing in time. But he does plot the route from IRD's beginning all the way up to the heavy metal explosion of 1986. And if you do go back to listen to that episode, strap yourselves in because if it wasn't for Alan and IRD, your exposure to metal might not have been strong enough to compel you to listen this far in to a great amateur documentary. But here is Alan talking about IRD and how they started their relationship with Roadrunner Records. So we were just importing their records. You know, we're mm-hmm. not we're not distributing the Roadrunner label. We were just importing records from their Dutch distributor called Bertus. Yep. Right. And uh, in like I said earlier, we were the um, we were the hard rock uh, experts, the hard rock company. Right. You know, at mm-hmm. that time it was just a, a you know an amazing time because you know you had this musically uh, musical explosions happening of disco and hip-hop and rap and then you had something then you had this underground of heavy metal that was just forming like what happened there that really took our company into like you know the stratosphere was now local metal labels from all over the world were contacting us and saying listen you guys are like killing it over there um, this is Digby from uh, uh, from Earache Records. Digby Pearson. Yep. Will you will you distribute my label, Earache? And we said, mm. okay. It's more stuff like what we're we're having a uh, you know a, a home run with, you know. And now there's um, a Carl Walterbach from Noise Records in Germany, right? With with yeah. his roster. Brian Slagle in his book For the Sake of Heaviness reflects on the 1986 explosion from his perspective. By 1986, there were three independent metal labels in the country, Metal Blade, Combat and Megaforce. All were vying for bands' attentions, and we were all trying to one-up each other while holding our ground in the face of the major labels that were taking an increasing interest in metal acts. You know, we were a little label at the time, so we, you know, we clearly can't do everything. So the more there's a Megaforce or a Roadrunner or Combat, or all these labels that involve, I just felt was better for the scene. You know, those two labels, Megaforce and Combat, then attracted every hard rock and heavy metal label from all over the world, from Sweden and Denmark and Norway. And, and of course, it was Case Wessels and Roadrunner who said, will you help me distribute my label? And we said, so absolutely. He was part of that cohort of people from Europe saying, hey. Right. But we certainly knew of Roadrunner because they were, uh, we were importing their records. Everything that he he brought to us sold great. Yeah, we couldn't keep anything in stock of any of this stuff because people were just uh, had such a hunk. People, uh, we didn't realize that people actually knew more about these bands in Europe than we thought. Mm-hmm. So that when we brought them in, they just flew off the shelf. And then we had a you know we 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 caught up with the mm-hmm. demand. In order to open up further opportunities for the label, Roadrunner would open up further offices in the UK, Germany, France, Japan, Australia, Denmark, Russia, and Canada. Yeah, and in the New York office, there was uh, Holly Lane mm-hmm. and Steve Ricardo. 
Well, I had a really good, uh, successful career going at Enigma. And my friend Paul Murata, who was uh, ran the, the New York Green World office, Holly actually started working there, Holly Lane. She worked under Paul. He called me one day and said, you're an East Coast guy. You've been out in California for too long. I found you something on the East Coast. And I'm like, all right, what is it? And he's like, Roadrunner's opening an office. They want you to come and run the office. And I'm like, Roadrunner? I know a little about them. I knew about uh, Motorhead was affiliated with them in Europe and Venom. Mm -hmm. And I knew some of the bands. So I was like, hey, you can't hurt, you know? Sure. So Case Wessels flew out to L.A. Mm. And I met him for lunch on the Sunset Strip. I didn't know then that he was great and uh, sober. And I had (laughs) several beers during our meeting because I was a young, I was very young and arrogant at that time. Right, okay. And um, he offered me the job basically on the spot. He said, I want you to come to New York. I want you to run our New York office. Holly Lane is already there. You know her, right? And I'm like, I've never met her, but I know who she is. Mm. So he's like, are you interested? He offered me a decent deal, decent money, and he gave me some moving expenses. I okay. thought about it, and I I took the job, and I said, okay, I'll move to New York. I can tell you right now, years later and even a year later, I regretted, the move. I regretted taking that job. <laughs> but more on that next time. So there's a few people in this story who haven't really had their say. There's actually a lot of people who weren't here to give their story. However, there's two I'm going to roll out the red carpet for really briefly, and that's Holly Lane, who you heard of in the last five minutes, and Jules Kurz. Uh, So Holly opened the U.S. office with Steve Ricardo. She was the first, technically the first U.S. hire for Case, and Jules Kurz was Case's lawyer. Now, the eagle-eyed among you will have spotted his name in one of those articles where I'm trying to track Case's career at the start. But Jules, as I understand it, was effectively Case's first point of contact in the United States prior to 1986, prior to Holly, prior to Steve. Um, So Jules was very much responsible for laying a lot of the foundation to getting Roadrunner where it was, especially in that side of the Atlantic. But... Both of those guys aren't with us anymore, which is an absolute shame because their, their input to this story would have been absolutely invaluable. But to give them their fair due, because you're going to hear about them a lot, and I think there's some context that's required, really. Uh, I'm going to read out Jules's letter of recommendation of Holly. In 1985, Case Wessels, my clients, opened up Roadrunner Records, Incorporated. I recommended Holly Lane to Case. She was interviewed and hired as Chief Operating Officer. During her tenure at Roadrunner, Holly was always the first one in the office every morning and the person who turned off all the lights in the evening. From nothing, Holly created a well-functioning company that laid the base for what today is arguably the leading independent record label in the world operating in the area of heavy metal and hard rock. Holly continued to circulate in the music industries and she continued to build up a repertoire of people she knew in all areas of the music and record business. So I just wanted to shout out on those two. But you'll hear a lot more about them in the next one. They were like shorting them hundreds of thousands of dollars. In, in, in... You know, I've had a 30-year career in the music industry, and I look back at my time at Roadrunner and think, I don't even know what I was doing for two years. It was kind of <laughs> silly. And Monty flipped out. I mean, he's like, who the fuck is this guy? <laughs> uh, Rob who? There was a rumor that had gone around that Case Wessels was just a uh, a pen name for uh for actually for for uh king diamond i remember money calling me and saying three questions guys three questions you know in, in a <laughs> new york accent you know come on three questions guys the very small wins in that company were the big wins you know we got the front cover of a fanzine and we were all jumping up and down and we we're really excited you know about that and the dude's huge right he gets in my face he goes if you fuck my record up, I will kill you. And I was like, is this guy serious? To be fair, mate, I've never seen Case and King Diamond in the same room, so... <laughs> the jury's still out, right?
the first Merciful Fate record, Melissa. This was the original cover, which wow. never had been used. So it has the road, Roadrunner stuff, but I don't know who didn't like it. But if I, if I can compliment, let's say, uh, end on one thing. I think Roadrunner was the very first label, metal label, that had their albums on CD. Mm. Japanese versions, and I still have some, you know, that with the white background that you could uh, uh, put them in two halves to open up. This is so typically of case, you know, tomorrow's thing now. So if you don't believe what I'm trying to say. And I remember coming from where I came from, that Rotunner was one of the first companies who had a, I really believe we had a computer network. One American guy, a manager, told me uh, last year, who was actually a good friend of Case, mm. he told me last year that uh, one of the bands in his management team was on the road on the label. The singer, he said, hey, he said, you know, he said, uh, Case is going to be here tonight. He's the owner of Roadrunner. You know, you, you do a great show. And at the very end of the show, I will give you a signal. You know, you say like, thank you, New York. Thank you, Roadrunner. When we will be back, you know, we're going we're gonna to blow your mind. Right? Uh, Case was at the show, and I don't know who it was, you know, the band was playing, and then at the, very, at the end, the manager made the sign to the singer, like, do your three lines, but the guy mixed it up a little bit, and he said, thank you, uh, thank you, New York, you know, thank you, Roadrunner, when we go back, we're gonna fuck you in the ass, and then the manager, <laughs> and, and while he said that, he looked straight at Case, not knowing it was Case. You know, <laughs> and the manager said, he said, he said, you know, I said, Case stood there for two minutes. And, and I said, I didn't know what he was going to do. If he's going to be mad, he's going to laugh. And he said, after two minutes, he said, Case turned to him and he said, like, he said, you know what? And I've been promised many things in my career, but I've never been promised I've been fucked in my ass. You know, and then he laughed. <laughs> and then he left and said and the next day at 10 a.m. in the morning you know a letter from the lawyer came that the band was dropped <laughs> oh. <laughs> had no warnings of this you say no warnings whatsoever we were practicing and rehearsing in our own studio we had we, we were very lucky we had our own rehearsal room we had our own setup we just had to walk into the room and practice and play, you know, and rehearse the songs. And my dad came in and said, Dave, there's somebody here that Martin Hooker sent up. You need to come and have a talk to them. So I came out the room totally un unaware what was happening. And my dad said to me, these guys are from Metallica and Martin Hooker sent them up and they want to ask you some questions about touring. So there is the guitarist and somebody else who's probably their road manager or something in Sunderland. This is a God's honest oath. And they were stood there. I didn't know who they were. I didn't know what they'd become. But they asked us if, the, if we could go on tour with them in Europe and we headline one night and they headline the next, but we need to use our PA system, which was massive, and our double-decker bus tour bus. And that to try and use us with, with them, you know, which was a great idea. But Brian, our bass player, who was the founder member, had said, oh, fuck that, man. We're not playing with them, man. You know, it's, it's, it's not, they're not our kind of music, man. They're not the same. They don't think the same as us. And we, I went back in the office and said to them, I'm sorry, guys, we're not interested. And for fuck's sake, how ignorant could I be? I never even offered a cup of tea or a fucking sandwich and now 